For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for a brand new season of This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. Welcome back from your summer break. Hey, hey. It's good to be back. (laughs) Good to be back. School's back in session. Last week, Oklahomans decided who they wanted as their candidates in the general election this November. In the Republican race for governor, Tulsa businessman Kevin Stitt defeated former Oklahoma City Mayor Mick Cornett with nearly 55% of the vote. Stitt uh, now faces former Democratic Attorney General Drew Edmondson and Libertarian Chris Powell. Neva, were you surprised by the results of Tuesday's runoff? Well, I think it was a very competitive uh, runoff, uh, Mm -hmm. hard-swinging as most of the runoffs were up and down the ballot. But when you look at it, uh, uh, Kevin Stitt had a very commanding win. I mean, with uh, 68 counties uh, and uh, a campaign that uh, cost $6.5 million uh, and almost uh, pushing $4 Four million of that is own money. So um, I think we had uh, we had the contrast between the outsider and uh, Mick Cornett, who um, uh, had been the Oklahoma City mayor, did very well again in in the metropolitan Oklahoma City area with the counties that he mm-hmm. won: Oklahoma, Cleveland, Canadian. Uh, so, uh, but um, as as was the case when he uh, lost a runoff in the congressional race uh, some years ago. I mean, it it became a contrast. I think in some measure uh, among Republican voters on the conservative issues that they care about. And on that, I think uh, uh, we saw that uh, Kevin Stitt was able to capitalize on that and basically run the table across the uh, across the state in terms of county wins. Right. Well, before we took a break, one of the things that we were talking about was who was going to pick up those lamb voters. And if you right. if you look at the map, uh, Cornette didn't do anything to expand his base. His if you the, the counties that he won are almost you know, identical to the counties that he won in the primary ballot way back in June. And so he did nothing to expand. And in the counties that he did win, he just didn't win big enough. I mean, he he did win big in Oklahoma County, but he didn't win big enough. He won in Cleveland County, but not nearly as much. And so when you see Stitt taking over a lot of those lamb voters, you know, lamb country and and, uh, rural Oklahoma in particular, you know, that's where Stitt won this race. And he created a lead that was just frankly insurmountable for uh, for Cornette to come out with. And I think that Neva's right. The, the, uh, the outsider, uh, the non-political actor, uh, the, the Trump message. I mean, this really became a referendum on Donald Trump. And, you know, for those of us that have you know seen and worked uh, around Mick Cornette as mayor for the last several years, uh, last many years here in Oklahoma City, uh, his efforts to try to position himself as a Trumpian candidate uh, were just you know very mm-hmm. disingenuous. I mean, it just didn't fit with who he was as a mayor, and I think that you know most Oklahomans recognize that. And you know, he tried to pivot with the Bullstit commercials, and you know, I initially didn't think that they were great, but whenever I would go visit relatives, uh, they thought that they were wonderful. Um, but they were not voting in that Republican primary either. Yeah. So I mean, I think that you know, Cornette didn't do himself any favors by trying to to pivot rather than having a conversation about that. But with that runoff electorate, it was I think it was stits to lose. Somebody did ask, was it the bull stit? Commercial. Do you think that might have been a backlash? Well, I th- I I think that there could be some backlash off of that. In his attempt, as as Ryan says, to pivot off of the immigration uh, question and to pivot off of the loyalty to the president, whether you know wh- what his real uh, alignment was with President Trump. I mean, those things became major issues among 
the Republican runoff voters that came out. And we have to remember that when you have a drop off in, in the runoff voting, I mean, the folks that come out on either side are those that are the are the most ideologically partisan, uh, typically, mm-hmm. in, in, in a race. And so uh, those issues were core issues to them. They were values issues. They were they were partisan issues that they wanted to see really where the two candidates lined up. And I think that's where, uh, in some measure, the Bullstead attempt to kind of uh, deflect that uh, may have in in rural Oklahoma in particular mm-hmm. may have somewhat backfired. And, and folks wanted an answer. They wanted answers on those questions. And the answers that Cornette could honestly give weren't going to satisfy that runoff electorate in the Republican runoff. I mean, these are these are voters that have more confidence in the president than the senior aides to the president have in their own boss. And, you know, whether that's whether you like that or not, that's the Republican runoff makeup. And it was just not one that Cornette was going to walk into and have a lot of favorability. I think that that dynamic, it's going to be very interesting you know, moving into November, uh, that outsider Trump candidate dynamic uh, versus Drew Edmondson, who, uh, you know, I think a lot of folks had hoped that he would run against Stitt. They saw Stitt as the more vulnerable of the two Republican candidates. I think that that's the wrong assessment. I think that I think Stitt has the potential to nationalize this race in a way that's problematic for Edmondson. Edmondson's key here is going to make this a ref, is going to be to make this a referendum on the Republican legislature and on Mary Fallon and not on Donald Trump. And I think that will be interesting because I think it's going to be very difficult to not to nationalize this election and for the and for the voters in Oklahoma to respond in kind. Uh, possibly the biggest surprise from Tuesday was the defeat of six incumbent Republicans in the state house. One, the one Tulsa World op-ed was unprecedented uh, to see so many incumbents lose. This included some big names from GOP representatives, including George Fott, Mike Ritz, Bobby Cleveland. The other thing in common, all six voted against the tax increase for teacher pay raises in the spring. Ryan, does this show the education walkout had an impact? I, I think absolutely it does. And, you know, all politics are local. You you know, every one of these races, I'm sure that you know, folks in those local jurisdictions can point or in those local districts can point to particular things about those candidates as to why they won or lost. But educators should and, and are taking a victory lap here because there's <clears throat> there's really not any other issue uh, that transcends all of these campaigns that ties them all together and makes every one of these ca- candidates that lost uh, identical in some way. And that was their lack of support for education during the last session <clears throat> and multiple special sessions uh, that were you know, both uh, uh, c- continuous for like the last almost two years. And so I think that uh, if, if you're an educator in Oklahoma right now, you recognize that in that electorate, you had a huge impact. And that's that's where I think that there's there's this, this subtext to the Republican primary runoff electorate that I said, you, you know, they trust the president more than his own senior aides. But in these uh, at the state level, <clears throat> whenever you can nationalize this and make it a Trump versus the Democrat race, I think that that's problematic at these local levels. They weren't able to do that. And that's not what happened. And these voters, even Republican primary runoff voters, they cared about education and that's what they voted on. Neva. I think it's true that it, that that was the backdrop, kind of the, the overarching takeaway that people will see with these, uh, with these six un- incumbents uh, losing the reelection bid. But I think that the bigger, the bigger point to be made is in each of those cases, they were already embattled and they were embattled uh, in, in various ways in, in their, in, in their respective districts. It wasn't a case of where across the board, that was the only issue 
issue being addressed. It was the only, certainly not the only addition, uh, the issue being hammered. And I think you had different issues, uh, and that that just kind of added, uh, you know, I guess in some measure people would say icing on the cake. But it still took uh, it, it took in low turnout elections, and in every one of those cases, I mean, in some cases those were still very close elections, mm-hmm. and you know, so it it wasn't just being galvanized by the one issue of uh, the vote on uh, House Bill 1010, but that was certainly the catalyst to bring some outside independent expenditures in that I think we saw in all of those races, uh, where they they saw the opportunity to weigh in and make their point as well. And uh, so I think we see the impact of that outside uh, that outside money coming into some of these races. It wasn't exclusively the reason either, but I think I think the composite effect was we had the perfect storm. We knew that this was a very volatile year. I think Republicans uh, across the board, uh, the wake-up call is that you don't take anything for granted, uh, in, in, certainly not in a primary or runoff, and no one should take anything for granted in a general. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, these campaigns are not foregone conclusions. When you when you underestimate the power of the voter at the local level, sometimes you come up short. And I think a lot of these uh, elected officials who lost kind of felt that way. They were kind of invulnerable. They could do anything they wanted, and, and they were not going to lose come come the election time. I mean, I think that that's certainly the longer you're in and the fewer competitive races that you have, that sense of invulnerability, I think, creeps up on you. And I'm, yeah, and I, and I do think you also had an element that's kind of the inside baseball element in that with <laughs> some of these incumbents, there was the infighting among Republicans in their own caucus mm-hmm. on the issue of 1010 on other issues. And that somewhat uh, was a was a subliminal factor, I think, in all of this. You didn't have the united front. You didn't have everyone going to the, you know, in concerted effort to go to the kind of go to the wall to make sure that incumbents came back. Some of them were on their own out there and it became a very lonely place with uh, with an avalanche of uh, attack coming from multiple, you know, multiple sides. And I think for some of them, it was uh, something they weren't familiar with and hadn't really dealt with before. Some of these folks had had fairly easy elections from sure. the from the get-go. From the very beginning. From the very beginning. And now you have them in a in the firefight of their life and, and they uh, they were not, uh, you know, not positioned to do well in the end. And whenever you've got these really close elections like this and, you know, you, Neva, you talked about the outside money coming in. You've got internal organizing, OEA leadership, Oklahoma Education Association leadership in those districts knocking doors and in races, especially where you have incumbents that aren't familiar or aren't their, their, their door knocking muscles haven't been exercised in many cycles. If you've got uh, a handful of motivated educators out there on the doorsteps, it it may take 10 or 12, uh, 10 or 12 votes to get or 10 or 12 voters out there knocking doors to get the hundred votes that some of these folks lost by. That's right. The ones that you have in common in every one, every district has a school. I mean, you you look at even Sean Roberts surviving by 87 votes. I mean, and you you could make arguments of, you know, what was the difference in whether he won or lost. I mean, some, you know, there's there's some uh, that would say that, uh, frankly, the James Lankford endorsement at the end uh, was a significant factor. There there, there are always those things uh, that happen, and yet uh, there were other races where, you know, folks came in and endorsed, and, and the incumbent did didn't didn't survive the uh, challenge. So uh, I think it's all across the board, but it is a it's certainly a wake up call, I think, to uh, uh, to lawmakers on either side of the aisle. When you get into when you get into this kind of a political environment, you better be positioned to take it on very strongly yourself. And for those of us who covered much more exciting election cycle (laughs) than we are used to. Absolutely. 
Another exciting thing, uh, the, in the race for attorney general, uh, it's not the results which were surprising, but the margin of victory. Incumbent Republican Mike Hunter defeated challenger Gettner Drummond by just 271 votes. However, Drummond, who put up such a fight for nearly six months, refused to seek a recount. Neva, why would Drummond concede this race so easily? Well, I think uh, easily probably is not the, the right phrase, but, <laughs> but certainly after a long, very hard-fought, bitter battle between uh, these two warriors, I think uh, when you look at the 271 number and you think about a recount or looking at irregularities or your options, uh, uh, I think what, what his team uh, explored was you know kind of all of those all of those situations and determined that it uh, that there was not going to be the threshold there they were not going to be successful uh, in overturning uh, that number and felt that uh, you know as he said that it just prolonged uh, it it kind of prolonged things unnecessarily and so I think frankly uh, you know from uh, the Republican perspective I think people applaud uh, uh, Gettner Drummond for uh, you know for being very gracious and being very uh, quick to uh, uh, to call an end to uh, the, to that conversation and move forward. I mean, it, it the unity uh, clearly was articulated by both uh, Attorney General Hunter as well as uh, uh, Mr. Drummond, and I think now for Republicans they see this as move forward uh, mm-hmm. with with uh, uh, with the uh, fall election still ahead and make sure that uh, you know that business is finished. You know, when you look at that total, to me the takeaway is four four votes per per um, uh, county would have changed the outcome of the election. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So when people say, you know, and I and I talk about it all the time, and I know Ryan does as well, when people say their vote doesn't matter, that, that it's, uh, you know, everybody assumes what the outcome's going to be, this is a perfect illustration in a statewide race of how significant each person's vote really was in that election. Sure, Ryan. Yeah, yeah, yeah quite incredible result. You know, that was, you know, everybody sitting there watching the, the precincts rolling in, and you're waiting on that last precinct. And, and then we all knew provisional ballots were still out. You know, Gettner conceded before the provisional ballots had been counted, I believe. And, you know, there was a statistical probable, you know, uh, it was statistically improbable. Yeah, the 271 uh, was the final. He could have, he could have technically tally, won yeah. uh, after they, but, you know, they were really, they were outstanding provisional ballots in Oklahoma County where Mike Hunter had a huge lead. So it was unlikely that right. the votes were going to be there to get him back. I think Drummond lives to fight another day. And, you know, that's, uh, you know, if, if he had, if he had fought this, um, it would have been incredibly expensive. It would have been a very drawn-out process. We're talking about a statewide recount. We're talking about you know looking at irregularities uh, in 77 counties. Yeah. This is this is expensive and takes you know maybe you know a month, two months uh, to complete. And in the meantime, you've got uh, a Democratic candidate out there running for Attorney General that I think most folks think is a, is an underdog. But if you've got the Republicans mired in a two-month uh, million-dollar-plus recount, yeah. who knows? Anything can happen. And so. I, you know, I think that Drummond looked at that and said, even assuming that there is a path forward here with a recount, I've got a much better path forward uh, as a potential candidate for something else uh, in the future. And, and he I'm, certainly left that door wide yeah, open sure. by not saying, you know, either way. And, and as one would expect, I think, in the the very uh, short time after after the results. And technically, in. Uh, in eight years, uh, there will be uh, that seat will be open okay. because of uh, term limits. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, and he could <laughs> he, he could always challenge Hunter again. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's he could run for any number of things. The, the amount of money that he spent to buy name recognition in the state of Oklahoma. And right now, there's everybody's got this bad taste in their mouth because that campaign was so negative and so bitter. But 
people will forget. The one thing that will be familiar to them at some point in the future, whenever he does decide to run again, and I, I think that that's more likely than not, is they're going to remember Drummond. They're going to remember Gettner Drummond. They may not remember what he ran for, but they're going to remember that name. And that's an enormous foundation to start any campaign on, especially a state. And Republicans campaign. will remember his loyalty to the party and Absol- basically absolutely. saying, yeah. Absol- out absolutely. There's, yeah. there's, there is yeah, so, definitely value in that. Yeah. He, he bought himself a lot of goodwill by walking away from that recount. Any other surprises that you guys had for the, the runoffs? Was, was there anything else that, that kind of drew your attention? Well, you know, I think that you, you saw a, uh, you know, a kind of a runaway up in, in Tulsa County uh, with Steve Kunzweiler for the DA mm-hmm. uh, running there. Um, you know, and that just, you know, I think demonstrates the, the power of incumbency and, and how, but that was not a, it, when I say it was a runaway, it wasn't as close, I think, as a lot of folks wanted it to be. Uh, but at the same time, you had a conversation there about criminal justice reform issues that really hadn't happened in the context of a DA's race. And I think we're going to see more and more of those conversations happening in general elections throughout the rest of this campaign cycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, here in <clears throat> here in Oklahoma County, uh, Carrie Bloom moving forward with the county commissioner race over uh, former state representative and former state senator Al McCaffrey and Kendra Horn just crushing Tom Guild and that uh, primary there now moving forward to face Steve Russell, Steve Russell in the fifth district race for Congress. Well, yeah, I think yeah. one of the things I'd like to point out is the fact that when we look at the legislative makeup and what the change, how dramatic it already is, not even taking into account what will still happen uh, in the November general election, is that we have 52, um, I mean, 52 new faces uh, at yeah. a minimum that are that are going to be coming in. I mean, and and the breakdown of that, uh, you know, obviously it's, uh, it's uh, 40 Republicans and 12 Democrats, but when you look at how that came about, I mean, we've had 12 defeated, we had 18 terms limited mm-hmm. 19 chose not to seek re-election uh, we had one death uh, of a uh, uh, during the during the campaign cycle right. and then we did have to you know moving from you know uh, making the decision to move from a house race to a senate race but that that total uh, kind of uh, landscape as we look at it really points to the fact that from a from a from a leadership standpoint and from a legislative standpoint looking at session next year i mean it's going to be a very interesting time with the backdrop of not a looming deep budget hole but rather a surplus i mean uh, the, the the coffers are are going to uh, look much different for the folks coming in not only as freshmen but returning lawmakers and i think it's going to make for a fascinating setup up. And and representation of women, uh, you know, I think oh, yeah. across the board. In my ballot in Oklahoma County, I had women uh, on the ballot for county, state, and federal races, and I voted for uh, the, the female candidate in each one of those, and each one of them won. And you know, that's I think that we're seeing uh, you know many more women candidates out there, uh, both on the ballot, but on the doorsteps, and winning these races, and that's really exciting. The past few months have certainly been interesting in the realm of medical marijuana. Since it passed in June, the health department made rules regarding the product, got sued over the rules and reprimanded, passed new rules, and now lawmakers are considering their own legislation to deal with this issue. Meanwhile, the first medical marijuana licenses were issued. Ryan, what are your thoughts? Where are we now? Uh, Well, how long... How long do we have? Tomorrow. Yeah, we've only we've only been gone ten weeks, Ryan. So <laughs> give only, us a give us a quick recap. Yeah. So so let's let's sum up ten weeks in, in a couple of minutes here. You know, I think that uh, one of the best things that could have happened for medical marijuana advocates in the state of Oklahoma uh, was for and you know when this happened, of course, everybody was losing their mind, myself included. When the health department passed these rules that required things like pharmacists to be in dispensaries that limited uh, cannabis products to 
to non-smokable. You know, did all of these things were totally contrary to state question 788. People lost their mind. Again, myself included in those folks and, and, you know, looking at litigation options, you know, ways to ensure that the will of the, uh, the people of Oklahoma moved forward. And, you know, everybody from the ACLU to the attorney general, Mike Hunter, are, are out there chastising the health department over this. And, of course, then we have the implosion within. And, you know, that's that's another topic I'm sure we can talk about in another yeah. time. <laughs> but, you know, in uh, in retrospect, you know, the health department walked away from that. And I think that uh, and I say that that's probably the best thing that could have happened right now, because what it did was that it sent a signal to both regulators, administrators, but I think more importantly to state lawmakers that the people of Oklahoma, they passed this, they meant it when they passed it, and they want the they want their politicians to protect it. And so the backlash that immediately happened after those initial rules, uh, I think, was a really it was a, it was a real uh, firewall to protect state question 788 moving forward. We've seen a group, a working group of legislators, a bipartisan group that have been meeting, asking very thoughtful questions, and, and looking at ways that they need to address this potentially in a special session, although I think that's unlikely, right. but more likely in the regular session coming up in 2019. But again, you know, I think that the voters and, and the backlash over that, that initial health department action have created a firewall. And so any sort of regulations that we see, I think are going to be minimal uh, and they're not really going to have a huge impact on patients' access to medical cannabis in and, Oklahoma. And how does the ruling party, the Republicans have mostly usually been against any kind of uh, marijuana legislation. How do they deal with this going in, knowing that the voters really want something on that, that works for them. Well, I think it's interesting. I mean, some of the uh, the polling clearly indicates that that the voters understood what they were voting for. Mm-hmm. That they understood it was medical marijuana. They they uh, they voted with uh, with that understanding uh, as they went to the polls. And I think uh, I think that set the stage for what's going on as Ryan describes. I think I think there is a clear effort being made to be transparent, to be uh, to allow all parties from all you know every persuasion and point of view to have input be at the table and have uh, an open process that ultimately uh, will come will come about with something that will give us a framework for a, a successful move forward and I think that I, I don't think there's anyone virtually out there that uh, chooses to be a detractor to that you know to that proposition I think I think we we understand and recognize that uh, that the people spoke uh, that the state question was uh, you know w- was laid out and uh, 800, 880,000 Oklahomans uh, went to the polls and, uh, and uh, the, their, their wishes were expressed. And now I think the, the lawmakers, I think, will use that as the impetus to come in and, and be very direct in how they approach this. And hopefully in, in a very bipartisan way, just as the committee that you described has been trying to do it uh, mm-hmm. in recent weeks. I mean, there's, there's no point in trying to score cheap political shots on this. The, the bigger overarching issue is Let's get it in a place where we know what, how it's going to operate. We know what the rules are. There's the enforcement element where there needs to be, and uh, and move forward. And then um, and then I think all parties can uh, walk away and be happy about the be a, happy about how Oklahoma's approached this. Yeah, it's it's really a model in, in bipartisan operation. I mean, there there <clears throat> there really haven't been many other issues at the Capitol that, you know, folks have just really coalesced around. And I, I think, you know, I commend Republican leadership because I think that whether it's just political expediency or they really uh, understand and have uh, you know, moved on this idea of 
uh, the, the medical benefits of uh, marijuana. And I think that is the key. It's yeah. the medical benefits. We're yeah, right. not talking about full-blown legalization of marijuana. We're talking about we're talking about the issue of medical marijuana. And again, I think some of the polling that I saw both before and after the election clearly indicated that voters understood the difference and understood what they were voting for. Because if you ask a follow-up question about full-blown legalization, you got a different result. Right. And so, so I think they knew what they were voting on. Uh, most, you know, most every uh, Oklahoman and American now an American nowadays uh, recognizes uh, uh, what people deal with, uh, you know, in terms of cancer and all of the other things that were these these medical um, uh, these medical things like medical marijuana make a tremendous uh, difference uh, in being able to um, uh, be be able to make their lives a little more comfortable and better. And as we mentioned earlier, fifty more than fifty new faces, regardless, are coming into the capital. Yeah. Do you think that'll help them? Maybe okay, we can work together because it's going to be fifty new people. I mean, if you trying to work, if together. you talk to, I mean, if you talk to folks like David Boren, uh, or if you listen to the words of folks like uh, the late Senator John McCain. You know, one of the things that they tell you that was instrumental to their ability to work across the aisle was that they had opportunities to work together. You know, they had opportunities to to familiarize themselves with their colleagues in a non-combative way. And so to the extent that Republicans and Democrats are sitting together on this joint working group and they're working together and they're not you know, thinking about scoring points on one another, but really working towards a uh, a thoughtful and meaningful and effective and effective regulatory and legislative re- response to state question 788. I think that, you know, there's only really good that can come in. I mean, I, I'm not naive to think that it's going to you know lead to everybody, you know, holding hands through a field of daisies tomorrow, but <laughs> I, I mean, am. but uh, we, we can hope. We but, can hope. but the inauguration uh, of a new governor in January, yeah. the, the, uh, the new legislature coming in and being sworn in in November after the uh, general election, I mean, does set the stage for kind of a restart. I mean, we've been through some tough times uh, from a legislative perspective and a governing perspective, and I think Republicans will be in a uh, a unique place and have an opportunity now to uh, to really kind of reset the stage and cast the uh, uh, cast a vision, you know, from the legislative perspective of what they want to see moving forward, and it'll be a great opportunity with a lot of new folks infused into the process but also with returning folks that have some you know some better understanding of uh, how that process works uh, to be able to make it happen and we're already seeing on the on the people side of this on the patient side of this you know clinics opening up businesses forming uh, real estate booms in, in areas around around the state of Oklahoma. And I think one of the most important things that it's going to happen is the lowering of stigma among marijuana use. You know, we're going to start to see doctors, lawyers, teachers, you know, the, the idea, the caricature of who uses marijuana, I think, is going to begin to slip away. And we're going to, I hopefully, that will have an effect on the way that we look at our other drug laws in the state of Oklahoma. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management.